The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. And amen. Let's welcome Jared. Thank you, Pastor Matt. It is an honor and a privilege to be here. I noticed that you didn't use the acronym for bring your own blanket when you did BYOC instead of BYOB. Well, welcome. Uh, Welcome to Story City Church online in person. We're glad that you are here. I love the name Story City Church because we want you to know that your story matters, that we want your story to be a part of our story, but ultimately that uh, you are a a part of God's story for this world. And so I love that. It's really, really cool to be a part of that. Um, I have the privilege, as Pastor Matt said, of serving church planters and pastors here uh, in in Los Angeles to help uh, plant churches. It's really, really a cool job. It's very different than uh, Revitalization Church, which I was leading for the last 10 years. Um, And so this is is a lot of fun. Before I go go any farther, though, uh, I want to stop just for a second. Uh, You guys need to know how really great your pastors are. I've worked with a lot of pastors and planters, and uh, Pastor Matt, Pastor Tyler are, are amazing. I mean, you guys really, again, Pastor Matt talks about clapping through your screens, but you guys need to know how much sacrifice and how much love they have for you as a congregation. It's a very, 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 very special thing. On top of that, I mean, they're both just such good-looking guys, right? I mean, it's like two Jolly Ranchers with legs walking around. It's, I'll let you guess which one's the red Jolly Rancher, but that's... This is also my home church, and, uh, and it's fun to be here because I'm with family today, and so I'm excited to be with you as family. Look, at speaking of family, I've got a question for you to think about. Do your parents have a favorite child? Do your parents have a favorite child? In, in my family, there is no doubt, 100%, my mom won't even hesitate when you ask her, between my brother and I, who her favorite child is, without a doubt, she will instantly say, my wife. That's just, it's just clear. It's absolutely clear. But today, we're going to walk right into the middle of a biblical family. We're going to walk right into their living room, and we're going to see this incredibly dysfunctional family right as they are. I mean, this is, this is a straight novella. These people are so jacked up, and they're trying to get the blessings from God. They're trying to be with God, and we see this, these broken people who couldn't be farther from the intentions of God. We see God's plan and purpose still fulfilled in their lives despite their best efforts. And in seeing them, we'll see ourselves. My goal for us today is for us to realize that we can clearly see our identity and worth are not found in what we do, good or bad, but in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So let's pray, and we'll open our Bibles to Genesis. God, you are incredible. You are amazing. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you're sovereign, that even in the midst of struggle and chaos and pain, that you are loving us right there, that you are so faithful, you are so good. And so I pray this morning, meet us where we're at. Help us to truly see you more, to love you more. I pray that as we leave today that we would have a clearer understanding of who you are and who we are in you. In the name of Jesus, amen. As uh, Pastor Matt mentioned, we're going to be in the book of Genesis this morning. Uh, For those of you new to the Bible, if you open up your Bible right to the middle, that's usually the Psalms. Uh, The very first book is the book of Genesis, and chapter 25 is about halfway through the book of Genesis. So we'll be in Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 to 34. 
it says this, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I want you to stop for a minute, underline that, highlight it. I promise you don't go to hell for writing in your Bible, okay? It's totally fine. Just highlight it, underline it, because we're going to come back to that, but I want you to pay attention to that. Again, this is a part of that dysfunction in that broken family. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now, as a bit of context here, this is Isaac, the son of Abraham. And for those of you who are new to this whole Jesus thing, God made a covenant with Abraham. Covenant is, um, is more than a promise. It's like the unbreakable curse that Professor Snape makes. It's this promise written where it cannot be broken, and the burden is on God to fulfill it. All the weight of fulfilling that promise falls on God. It's beautiful. It's not on us. It falls on God. And all of that comes to him. And he says, I promise that I will get this done. This is a covenant that God makes. And so God makes this covenant promise with Abraham. He says, if you will follow me, get rid of all the other gods that you've thought about serving, follow me into the unknown in full faith, go where I tell you and serve me. Not only will I bless you and make you the father of many nations, but I'm going to bless the entire earth through you, that all the world will be blessed because the Savior the Messiah, the one who's going to make a path for all creation to be rescued and redeemed, will be born through your family, Abraham. And so God makes this covenant promise with Abraham. Now, his son Isaac grows up knowing all about that promise. He knows all about that covenant. He understands it. But Isaac also knows how the world works. You see, in those days, uh, when you would have uh, children, the oldest born son would get two-thirds of the inheritance when the father passed away. He would also have control over the direction of the family. He would have the ultimate say. He becomes the head of the family. The second-born son gets one-third of the inheritance and no say or control in the family. And any son after that, so if you're son number 14, you have to rely entirely on the older brother, the first-born son, to provide for you. That's it. That's all there is. There's no, nothing else. And so um, he recognizes this and this is a part of what's going on. Now, remember, this is also an individual, this is not an individualistic society like we grew up here, 
right? Uh, my daughter is just going off to college. It's a, it's a very sad time for us. I mean, we're excited for her. We, we, you know, we helped prepare her for this. Hopefully we did a good job of preparing for this for her. Um, and it's, it's, but she's excited to leave. And these days, the families wouldn't leave. You had to stay together because everything was dependent. Your survival was dependent on your ability to, to be able to stay together, to fight off enemies together. In fact, that's one of the things about this. If, if your family, you lived and died as a family, if your family said something to some, another family, if one member of your family says it, then your entire family's fighting, right? It's like Hatfields and McCoys. You guys are going at it. It doesn't matter. One individual speaks for the whole family in that sense. And so these two brothers fight each other from birth, and they're actually internally fighting where they should be standing together as a collected family. What are they fighting for? They're fighting for that blessing that was promised to come through Abraham by God. Now, the idea was the blessing and the birthright were separate, but whoever controlled the oldest son who controlled the birthright then got the blessing by right. So Jacob thinks he's got this under control when he suckers Esau into giving up the birthright for some stew, but it's not quite that simple. Now, before we can truly understand the stew part of the story, I think we need to grasp a little bit more of this family dynamic. So let's go back a little bit and look at verse 23 again. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. God makes it clear that the younger son is the one who the blessing is going to come through. Now, God had promised that this is the one. So what's the problem? Well, verse 28, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So you have parents who love their children differently, and one loves this son, who is the warrior, the, the, the man of the family, and the other loves this one that's maybe more calm and calculated. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And, and, and really, this comes down to the blessing and how it's going to be implemented. If we can be honest with each other for a minute, we as parents, those of us who are parents, all of us have expectations of who our kids will be and what they'll be like. We do. Whether we realize it or not, we have it. And even those of you who don't have kids yet but want them, you have expectations for your kids, what they're going to be like, what things they'll be interested in. Even those who don't want kids, you definitely have expectations of other people's kids, but that's a sermon for another time, so we'll work on that later. Now, we may not want to all live vicariously through our kids, right? But we have things that we maybe even unknowingly want them to become. What happens when you're the athlete dad who has a mathlete son? Or you're the musician whose child can't hold a tune or carry a beat? Every time you look at your child, it can be like they have failed you over and over again without even realizing why. And you may not even realize that's the case. But when we hold those expectations over them, we, we hold them to something that, that maybe they don't even see or understand. And we set up this case where they, they really are disappointing us, whether we recognize it or not. And, and guess what? Kids see through those things. They know those things. They understand those things even when we don't. Now, why do we have expectations for our kids? I think it comes from a really healthy place. It comes from a place of love. We want our kids to experience life in a better way than we did ourselves. We want our children to not have to go through the things that we did. We don't want to see them live through the same mistakes that we or our parents had to live through. We don't want them to suffer in the ways that we had to suffer. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is when we hold those expectations, as Isaac discovered, it doesn't consider who God created them to be. 
I love the picture that author Nancy Guthrie paints in talking about this passage. She writes, when Rebecca finally gave birth after 20 years of trying, out came first the furry, fiery, red-headed Esau, whose foot was firmly in the grasp of his twin brother Jacob, whose name means heel grabber or cheater. These two boys were opposite to the extreme, and mom and dad each had a favorite. Picture the family Christmas card photo when the boys are nine or ten. Isaac, his arm around Esau with his unkempt head of red hair, dirt behind his ears, a bow and arrow on his back, and holding the severed head of his latest conquest. Then there is Rebecca with her arm around the son she adores, Jacob, who is obviously less adventurous, perhaps more calm and calculating. And over the years, Isaac became blind physically, but perhaps even blinder spiritually. God had made it clear that Jacob, the younger son, would be the son of promise instead of Esau, just as Isaac, the younger son of Abraham, was the son of promise instead of the older Ishmael. But that went against what Isaac wanted, and he preferred to ignore it. He hoped to overrule it, and Jacob and Rebekah, not trusting God to provide it, schemed and deceived to take it. Think about this for a moment. You have a dad who's like, well, God couldn't have wanted me to trust something as big as this promised blessing, something as big as the future of this family, something as important as the security of this family to the weaker child. Obviously, God gave me this kid who's growing into what a man is supposed to be like for a reason. His warrior's strength is what we need to ensure that his, this promise comes about. See, Isaac clearly believes that even though God made this promise, it still had to be fought for to bring it about. He's trusting in his own strength and power over God's plan because honestly, it makes more sense when you look at it. It makes more sense when you look at it to have the stronger kid, the tougher kid, be the one that fulfills that to ensure the survival of the family. Now, Rebecca and Jacob, on the other hand, know what God has promised, but they don't trust God to bring it about either. They decide that even though God this promise, it still had to be fought for and brought about. And so they trust in their own scheming and cunning plans over God's because in reality, it seems like God isn't doing anything about making his plan come true. And so this Jacob, this deceiver, cheats his way into the birthright to ensure that he gets God's promised, promised blessing. But that's not the end. But wait, there's more. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 7, a couple chapters after where we were before. Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 to 19 says this. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I'm now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I might give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to his, uh, Rebecca, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me 
just do what I say, go and get them for me. I told you, this is a straight novella. This is like crazy. This is actually happening, right? Verse 14, so he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with the goat skins. Then she handed her son, Jacob, the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, my father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And the story goes on and he does get the blessing by trickery. Now, Jacob doesn't just need this birthright to get what he wants. He needs the blessing from his father. And I imagine that this was probably almost more important to a kid like Jacob. I want us to put ourselves in in, in his situation for just a moment. We can gloss over the Bible, right? We can read it and go, that's a nice story. But, But these are real people. These are real things that happened. And so I want you to put yourself in the moment. What would it be like growing up with a dad that you could never please? One that you could never be enough for. One that you just know that you'll never measure up no matter how hard you try. Some of us had those parents. Some of us are those parents. Jacob dresses up like his brother. He enters his father's tent and he approaches his bed wearing goatskins and dirt-smelling clothing, deeply longing for his father's blessing and approval. Many of us are standing in the same place, standing in front of the throne of God, shabbily dressed up in our best works and hoping that he might mistake us somebody worthy for him. If you're taking notes, this is our first observation. We are not worthy on our own. We are not worthy on our own. See, the reality is is that Esau would never be Jacob, and Jacob would never be Esau. Think about this for the moment. Is this the family you would choose to be in the lineage of Jesus? Is this the family that you would choose if you were God and be like, okay, I know the perfect family that I'm going to bring the blessing that blesses the entire earth through. Is this the family that you would choose? This family is a disaster. Why? Because ultimately what they care about is more the blessing from God than God himself. Nancy Guthrie writes, everyone in the family sought the blessing of God without bending the knee to God. But we also see our gracious God at work in the midst of this family and their failures. In spite of Isaac's opposition and Rebekah's manipulation, Jacob's deceitful imitation and Esau's indifference, God's word will be accomplished. One of the areas in my life that I struggle with most, and I was telling Pastor Matt this morning that I, I struggle with trying to earn God's approval. I want God to like me, to think well of me. I want people to do the same. And I'm, I'm constantly trying to prove that I'm good enough. In fact, I had a tattoo across my chest, nothing to prove, just so I would constantly remind myself that there is nothing to prove. You see, I'm Jacob trying to dress up and appear to be something I'm not in front of God to get his blessing. I know I'm not the only one here. Many of us feel like we can never do enough or be enough for God to like us and to love us. But some of us stand before God truly believing he's the blind Isaac. We think we can wear enough goodness to be seen as good, to put on just enough for God to say, well, at least you're better than that Jared guy, so I'm kind of obligated to let you in. In both cases, we run smack into Romans 
chapter 3. Romans 3 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you're taking notes today, this brings us to our second observation for the day. Jesus is the worthy son. Jesus is the worthy son. See, the goodness of God is that our promised salvation, our value and worth are not about us or dependent on us at all. Jesus is the hero of the story. Let's look at the verses just before and after Romans 323, 321 to 24 says this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith. The Bible says that faith doesn't even come from us. God gives us that faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace, not by what we do, by his grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. I truly believe one of the greatest hindrances to spiritual growth in Christianity today, for those of you who are still checking out this Jesus thing and you're still waiting through this, I just want you to hear some of the issues that we who have been apprenticing Jesus for a while, we still have issues. We still have all of our junk, right? Because God is bringing that stuff to the surface to get rid of it. And so I just, we just want to be open and honest about our junk today. And one of the things that we deal with most is that we have this mistaken desire for the things of God instead of God himself. We want the blessings without the blesser. We don't trust God, so we try to do everything in our own strength, in our own way, just to make sure that we get what we need. But this isn't just an Old Testament thing. This was humanity throughout history. We see this in the New Testament as well. Jesus tells a story of two brothers who only want what their father has. One is upfront about it. He takes his inheritance. He leaves. He lives wildly. He wastes his life and his money before repenting and returning to his father with a humble heart. The other brother hides his contempt for his father behind his outward obedience. These stories serve as a foreshadowing of both who we are as those brothers, but also as Jesus is the true and better son. See, Jesus shows us the true and better way to live in the blessing, promise, and covenant of God. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, lays aside the glory he's entitled to, and he relies on the power and presence of his father to carry out his father's business. He surrenders to his father's will and timing. He does this because he loves the father and is the true and worthy son. And so if you're taking notes today, this is our last observation for the day. Point number three, in Jesus, we become worthy. In Jesus, we become worthy. As we close today, as we start to wrap this up, I want us to look at this passage from the book of Romans. Romans chapter eight, verses one to two says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's amazing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives us life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Let's skip down to verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in the sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. There is no part or portion of our lives we can do better than Jesus. 
There's no blessing or hope more than the one that he provides. There's no better timing than Jesus' timing. But just like Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, it's hard for us to see and trust that God is actually doing what he promised he was going to do. Why? Because life, that's why. We, we experience life as convoluted and painful. We suffer and somehow think that suffering is God removing his blessing from us or his promise from us. But in all of this, the answer is to do the opposite of what we would normally do. Instead of grabbing control, instead of trying to force or trick or steal or connive what God has for us, we simply need to be with him. We'll never be or do enough, but we don't have to. We simply need to spend time with him, to sit at his feet and become an apprentice of Jesus. An apprentice is somebody who learns at the feet of a master. To learn to live in that promise that our hope lies, not in what we do, but in who we are. Who we are is because of who God is and what he has done. As an apprentice of Jesus, you can stand before him not as Esau, not as Jacob dressed up like Esau, but as you dressed in the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus. And he says of you, you are my child. I love you and I'm pleased with you. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? This can be difficult whether we're new to apprenticing Jesus or been doing it a long time. So I want to give you one practical thing to do this this week. As you're really thinking about what it means in your life to be absolutely loved by God, to be accepted and worthy just as you are, not because you might be something someday, but right where you are right now, the enemy loves to accuse us and keep us in believing in God's grace for us. And so here's a practical thing I'd like to remind you of. When you begin to hear those voices, the Holy Spirit brings conviction, okay? Conviction says, my dear son or daughter, I love you. But when you make that choice or do that thing, it's not what's best for you. I have something better for you. Let me take that. Let me have that because I love you. That's conviction. Remember, when we are already forgiven our sins, we don't have to pay for them over and over again. Jesus paid for them. It's done for those of us who are apprenticing Jesus. The enemy, though, he brings guilt and shame. Guilt and shame never come from Jesus. Guilt and shame say this. I can't believe you as a pastor or follower of Jesus would, would do that thing. What kind of horrible person are you? You know, you better hope no one finds out. Let's show Jesus how sorry you are so you can be worthy again. This week, as you're weighing what it means to be his beloved child, embrace the conviction and let go of the guilt and shame. Let's pray. You are amazing. Thank you for your grace. We know we can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But you are so good. You are so loving. You are so kind. I pray that you would help us this week to see that, that who we are is not dependent on what we've done, what we are doing, but in who you are. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.